Hello and welcome to The Energy Gang, a discussion show about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Ed Crooks. Today, we're going to be following the money. We're going to be talking about ways that investment gets used and doesn't get used to build a low-carbon energy system. We're going to be talking about the backlash against ESG investing. We're going to be talking about a possible new model for using investment to cut emissions. And we're going to be talking about what the Biden administration is doing to mobilise capital to deliver clean energy technologies when the private sector seems to be falling short. Joining me on the show today, we have Emily Chasen back again. Emily is the Director of Communications at Generate Capital, the green investment firm. Hello, Emily. How are you? Good to have you back. Hi, Ed. Great to be back. How have you been since you were last on? Um, good. I've been traveling a little bit and um, getting to enjoy some of the summer weather on the East Coast, so that's pretty nice. Yeah, it has been very nice, hasn't it? Yeah, uh, likewise, enjoying the weather. A little bit nervous about some of these uh, high temperatures we've been having and the prospect of extreme heat over the summer. I know that, for instance, much of the south, it's been pretty brutal, hasn't it? But fortunately, up where we've been in, in the northeast, not been so bad. Yes, but it definitely felt like spring went right into summer. So that was a different uh, way to think about it. Also, my pleasure to welcome back Shanu Matthew, who is Vice President of Sustainable Investing and Net Zero Research at Lazard Asset Management. Hi, Shanu. How are you? Uh, what have you been up to since you were last on the Energy Gang? Hey, Ed. Hey, Emily. Uh, great to be back on. Um, I think this year has been keeping me quite busy with all the activity going on in financial markets. So just trying to stay abreast of that. But, you know, also, yeah, enjoying a little bit of this summer weather here while we can. Yeah, of course. It has been uh, quite a lively time in financial markets these past few weeks, hasn't it? Yeah, exactly. And in amongst this turmoil we've been seeing in markets over the past few weeks, there has been one big story, which has been very relevant to the energy business and to the question of clean energy investment and how do you cut emissions. It's been very clear over the past few years that one of the huge changes in the investment world has been that there are now tens of trillions of dollars of capital aligned with the goal of getting to net zero emissions. But what we've seen just in the past few months has been a bit of a backlash. We've seen it from politicians, regulators, even in the investment industry itself. The idea of climate-focused investing has been under attack as part of what seems to be a broader pushback against the concept of ESG investing in general, that is, investing that takes into account environmental, social, and governance factors. So I think it's a really important subject for us to talk about today, to think about how this backlash might affect the energy industry, and the shape of investment in clean energy going forward. Shanu, to start with you on this, ESG investing, environmental, social, and governance-focused investing, is a hot topic, has become a very big thing in the investment business in recent years. Can you explain a little bit about what it is and why it has had such strong growth recently? Yeah, absolutely, Ed. I'll start off with the you know the evolution of ESG into what it's turned into now, and then maybe some helpful delineations of, of types of ESG funds. ESG, in terms of its roots, started off uh, you know anywhere from the '60s to the early 2000s in the form of socially responsible investing, uh, which was mostly religious organizations or other institutions that wanted their capital to not be invested in things that they did not find aligned with their value system. So things like tobacco, firearms, uh, gambling, um, things of that nature. And so over time, what happened is, you know, when you started in that, in that time period into the, you know, the last decade or so was increasingly investors became aware that there are certain non-financial 
components or considerations that should be incorporated into the investment process, such as exposure to climate change, um, you know, treatment of workers, general board diversity or employee diversity. Um, and, and you know, over the last five or 10 years, you saw a lot more of a recognition that these things can be financially material in ways that would impact your investment process. And so you, what you saw was this explosion uh, of money and or marketing uh, around this topic where you know, everyone and, and their brother and sister are starting uh, new funds. That being to say is that um, you know, there are a few definitions within ESG that I think are really important to get across that you know, the average audience may not be aware of. And the SEC actually just released guidance around this that I thought was particularly accurate, where there's three main buckets, if you will. So there's ESG integration, which is tying back to that certain idea that there are certain non-financial components that are important to an investment process, and that ESG factors are a consideration among many that represent a mosaic of how you look at an investment company in terms of you know their addressable market, their margins, their cash flows. Um, so it's not the you know sole and only factor; it's it's part of a toolkit. You then move upstream to a sustainable investing or ESG focused fund where you know the sustainability angle is a core driver of the thesis or the main driver. And so that could mean either through delivery of products and services, the company is making the world a more sustainable place, or the company will stand to benefit um, as the world transitions to a more sustainable world. Um, and so, you know, fund managers in this space would have the evidence, you know, how they're measuring this, whether it's you know, percentage allocation to green capex or green revenue. Um, and you know how they engage with these companies as well as their proxy voting record. And then finally, if you go upstream, you have uh, impact-oriented investing. And so this is where investment managers are actually solving for an actual impact outcome, and that's focused uh, you know, on if they define how they measure it, um, on what time horizon, and et cetera. But this is probably the, the most upstream thing. And so when you think about how all three of these things got amalgamated into, into one catch-all term ESG, um, but represent vastly different approaches. Um, you can see why there's a little bit of backlash here, um, because on one side you're talking about risks and opportunities that may lead to alpha generation opportunities, which I think is a fairly black and white concept and pretty neutral to a values based approach, which is kind of more the impact. You can see why people have certain types of backlash um, when you're comparing things that shouldn't be necessarily compared to apples to apples. And so I think that's what you're seeing right now, which is more a function of growing pains than anything else in terms of an industry that grew faster than what most people probably expected. Right. That's really fascinating. And I think that's really helpful for clarifying a discussion. That seems to be a really important distinction between, as you say, kind of using ESG factors as part of your toolkit for making investment decisions, just because you think that's the way you're going to maximize returns in the long term, and using ESG factors because they're based on your values. And you have particular moral, ethical viewpoints that you want to be pursued when you're investing. And it seems to be it's that second part that's particularly under attack, right? So that's when you see, take fossil fuels as an example. Some people would say, well, we think it's unethical to invest in fossil fuels. A lot of other people would say, well, we don't. And this is when you're seeing um, Republican politicians, for instance, saying we won't do business with uh, investment firms that don't invest in fossil fuels. I guess the fundamental thing they're saying is we have different values from you and we don't see why we should be forced to accept your values. Is that what's going on? I think that's a fair characterization of what is going on, at least from what I've seen from the rhetoric. It's generally about that, that concept of if I don't agree with your particular political and or social views, I could potentially be cut off from financing uh, if I'm a company and or you know, they extrapolate it to in, in the future, maybe individuals being cut off for their political or social views. 
I don't necessarily think that's that's what's occurring, and and you know it does seem to be a little bit exaggerated or you know aggressive right now. But I guess in terms of I, I could see why there's hesitation around it. But I mean, the one point that I would make that I thought was particularly interesting is there's a book called Impact by Sir Ronald Cohen, who's considered the father of social investment. And he talks about when even the SEC was first introduced, when generally accepted accounting principles, which is called GAAP, which are you know mainstays of how investing is done today, were first created. There was a huge backlash and anti-sentiment that you know it was the end of American capitalism as you thought. And so I thought that was an interesting parallel that I had never really considered because I wasn't around back then. Um, that it just goes to show when there's various evolutions of how we approach these markets and or interact. Um, and have certain types of information requirements um, that you may see certain types of backlash that are, you know, quite, um, I guess, motivated in terms of where they think that this is all heading and, you know, how it could be the end of a, a certain system. Um, so I thought that was an interesting parallel to draw where, you know, you could see why that sentiment exists. Yeah, that is really interesting. So, Emily, what do you think about this? Do you agree there is a backlash against ESG investing underway right now? Um, well, I think the backlash is sort of predictable, right? I mean, I've been tracking ESG for a pretty long time. Um, I started off as like an accounting reporter in my career and as a journalist, but then I started writing about ESG back in 2012. And that was the time when CFOs started to get really concerned about all these like non-GAAP metrics that people were asking for on workers, on environmental stuff, and, and wondering where that was coming from. And then I went to Bloomberg and I launched the Sustainable Finance Newsletter at a time when ESG was really um, a niche area. It was mostly religious orgs. Um, one of my favorite parts of the job in the early days of ESG was speaking to nuns and friars that were concerned about fossil fuels or fracking or weapons. It was a really like, this is your money. These are your values. How do you invest when you want to be ethical and moral about the way you invest? And then over a very short period of time, in a few years, suddenly there were trillions of dollars in ESG funds and ETFs, and some of them launched somewhat hastily. And there's sort of like a growing skill set around ESG on Wall Street. Um, is it something that solves the problems we're looking to solve? Or is it something that's sort of more like selling an organic apple versus a regular apple? Um, that's sort of a fundamental question that I think people are asking. And that's sort of why the backlash is there. But when you talked about, you know, all this news about Stuart Kirk and um, HSBC and this conversation about is this really a short term thing or a long term risk? Or how can we do these long term investments when we think about a short term risk? I think what that's really evident of is that there's just a lot of different constraints in the markets today. When I first started writing about ESG, people weren't sure that it was a financial risk. And over time, they've come to see that there are elements of it that really are a financial risk. But what financial markets are built on is how, we, how we've grown them since the 1970s is really something that was constrained by financial metrics and financial accounting. And adding that in is really a, a huge task. And we're sort of limited by our legacy economy and when we're doing that as well. So there is some backlash. Um, I think it was predictable if you go a lot in and then the pendulum swings back. But yeah, I think it's not necessarily exaggerated. I just don't think we've um, fully figured out how to use ESG to solve these existential questions of our time. Yeah, that is really interesting. And I'm going to come on to uh, that thought at the moment. But you mentioned Stuart Kirk. We do have to talk about Stuart Kirk, head of responsible investment at uh, HSBC. Some, I know him a little bit, actually. He's a former colleague of mine at the Financial Times. We used to work together way back in the dim distant past. And a lot of people, I'm sure, will know the story. It got a lot of coverage. He was giving a speech, in fact, actually, I think, at a Financial Times conference. And it was one of these things where it sort of feels like he forgot he wasn't a journalist anymore because he spoke in a very sort of colorful, vivid way about 
ESG investing and about climate risk in particular, to the extent that he had a, I mean, he had several substantive points and he made um, some points about the kind of the greenwashing aspects of ESG investing, which actually is something else I want to get onto. But he also talked about climate risk specifically. And he said his issue with climate risk was that it was being exaggerated. China, going to your point about, as you say, one of the things that investors are doing when they think about climate risk is actually nothing to do with values. It's simply about long-term maximization of investment returns and saying you've got to take climate risk into account when you're doing that. And the Stuart Kirk pushback against that is to say, well, actually, yes, climate change has risks, but these are long-term risks. These are things which are going to hit us decades into the future in their worst aspects, and we're going to have time to adjust and to adapt. And there are things that can be done to manage those risks that mean that in terms of investment managers making decisions today, it's not that big of a deal. You don't really need to take climate risk into account. And certainly you don't need to take it into account as much as policymakers and central banks and other people are telling you you have to. What do you make of that? I mean, I'm interested in both of your thoughts on that. But I mean, Shanu, maybe ask you about that one first. What do you make of that argument? Do you think he has a point? And is this something which is sort of um, a minority view in the investment community? Do most people think you should take long-term climate risk into account? Or do you actually see a lot of people, broadly speaking, agreeing with, with that point that it's not something you need to worry about when you're making short-term investment decisions? Yeah, absolutely. Um, if I may, I might, I might separate my answer into, into two parts here. And so on the first, in thinking about long-term climate risk, I, I think where Stuart Kirk ran into issues was, as you say, kind of he approached the situation rather flippantly, and, and the, I think the rhetoric that he used diluted some of the questions or the provocative kind of angle he was using, which was, you know, does long-term climate risk factor into investment decisions made today if your time investment horizon is a year or three years or five years? And I think that topic, irrespective of how he said it, is, is a fair question to think about, right? I mean, how do things that materialize in 2030, 2040, 2050 impact my decisions today? Because um, if they don't, then, you know, you in effect, could be argued to be greenwashing because it's you're overstating the importance of that in your overall investment process. That being said, I think where he went wrong was you know underplaying the the importance and I guess impact of certain impacts today already, right? I mean, if you think about what's going on with global food security and wheat, I mean, India's decision to exit the export markets was was partially driven off the fact that they have they've had really bad yields due to you know likely climate change exacerbated heat waves across the country. Um, those are actionable, you know, issues that are happening today that are impacting markets um, and/or security prices. And so, I think to think of that all of climate change is kind of you know this 20, 30, 40, 50 year problem that doesn't impact securities today is 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 a foolish one. And I think this is where I would separate to the second part of the answer is it also misses the entire climate related opportunities part of the discussion where I think a lot of investors get excited. Where if you think about what's going on, whether it's in power or in automotive. Right. I mean, if you haven't been paying attention to the decarbonization theme, you've you've missed the boat on where returns are coming from and or where investment dollars are being spent. Um, you can't have a view on power if you don't understand renewables and, and, and the trends that are going there. And automotive, the shift to EVs, one of the most generationally transformative things to happen in automotive that probably won't be as big again in our lifetime. And so I don't know how one could intellectually honestly discount those major trends, given that they are directly related to decarbonization and say that it doesn't incorporate into the investment process. So I think you know some of the questions might be fair in terms of the longer term climate risks, but I think it underplays and underappreciates you know, active decision making happening today that is related to that same theme. So Emily, how do you think about this? How do you take 
long-term climate risk into account when you're thinking about investment decisions? Well, Generate's an infrastructure investment firm. So everything that we do is focused on sort of a long time horizon with infrastructure assets generally having a 10 to 20, 30 year lifespan, sometimes 50 years, right? So when you're making a decision today about the infrastructure you're gonna spend your time on or spend your money on, you really are making a decision that's going to impact people 50 years from now. It's gonna serve people that aren't even born. Um, as our CEO, Scott Jacobs, always likes to say. What's going on here, I think, is this question about time horizon in the financial markets. And I started my career as like a stock market reporter writing stocks are up today, stocks are down today story. So that was a very short time horizon for trading. And um, some people have that time horizon. Other people, you know, like pension funds, they have a much longer time horizon where they say, oh, I have 100 years of liabilities here that I have to meet. So I think um, this time horizon question is what people are doing, but you're sort of underestimating that the decisions we make today are going to follow us. And so what right do we have to sort of take those short-term decisions and leverage everyone else's future, right? How do we prioritize mitigation versus adaptation? Divest, invest, is it really constrained by your own investment time horizon? Like what are you trying to accomplish there? What kind of world are you trying to leave behind? Um, I think that a lot of younger people are very focused on this because they're not sure like what their retirement is going to look like. There's a lot of interest in putting ESG funds in your 401k, for example, because they think like, oh, well, that will take into something that's going to be an issue by the time I retire. Um, there's people now that are planning their careers by reading the IPCC reports from the UN, right? Um, so should we plan our investment portfolios the same way? Quite possibly. And I think John was really onto something about decarbonization. And um, that's a thing that takes a long time. So the decisions we make every day are something that's going to um, follow us for a while. Infrastructure is not very fast to build, not very fast to turn over. We're sort of building a new, a new train track for everybody to get on, and we have to figure out how we're going to do that relatively quickly um, to meet the scale and scope of the climate problem. There was a, an interesting hearing that was done before U.S. Congress, um, the Joint Economic Committee. It was called like examining the impact of shareholder primacy, what it means to put stock prices first. And uh, one of the arguments that one of the you know um, speakers made was that he argued that most investors today are fairly diversified, which I think if you think about the average person with their index funds or, or ETFs um, is probably true. And when you think about it, you know diversified shareholders you know effectively internalize externalities in their portfolios. And when you have negative externalities like climate change or socioeconomic inequities, those actually burden the economy and, and result in impacts to the overall beta, which is you know that kind of where the overall market's moving. And so, if you think about it from that lens, I guess kind of to Emily's points, where some of these people that are more long-term oriented in nature, even if they don't think it's going to happen on a one, three, five-year basis, if there's like actual negative externalities to the overall economy, the overall labor force, those decisions will eventually impact into your you know overall security prices and/or overall market returns. So, I think that's kind of an interesting one where. You can see the philosophy around these things is, is evolving quite quickly. And again, I think like right now, investors should be more focused on these pockets where you know it's very tangibly impacting decisions today. And so to, to underappreciate that, I think, is, is, is kind of missing a, a lot of what is happening in this space right now. Yeah, that is a really interesting point, actually. I hadn't thought about it that way. But as you say, that impact on the market as a whole and the whole economy is clearly um, a huge uh, aspect of this. We've been talking about climate risk and we've been talking about ESG and I've been very much sort of conflating the two, but as we've been hearing and Jenna, you were explaining this in, in terms of the history and everything, they are separate concepts. One of the things I've seen people starting to say is, and this is people in the investment community, some people even involved in ESG investing, is uh, people have started to say that it's a concept that perhaps has outlived its usefulness, that by conflating 
environmental factors and social factors and governance factors, these are quite different things. And if you blend them all together, you kind of get a lack of clarity into what you're actually looking at. And you can get some quite sort of confusing uh, signals being sent. If you have, for instance, a company which is great on the environment, but terrible on governance, then how should you judge that and so on? And trying to uh, stick everything together into one ESG metric is not helpful. Do you think there's something in that? I mean, Shirley, what do you think about that? Is that something where perhaps we should be looking for more sophisticated measures and more focused measures, perhaps, that get beyond this idea of ESG? Yeah, this is one that I personally believe is going to lead to just further delineation and, and as you say, a more focused approach to, to calculating these metrics. Um, I mean, from a personal standpoint, I never really understood how you know, weighting a bunch of disparate E, S, and G factors, and then trying to weight them against one another into a single score would would result in in a in an accurate assessment of a company. Um, and I think you see that in a lot of like the academic literature. I mean, studies by like MIT or the University of Zurich show like correlations between the ESC agencies being as low as you know 0.3 to like 0.7. So um, I think like that was always kind of an inherently flawed approach, but it was just kind of the best that we have. Um, but I think now that you know the industry is in the limelight, I think that now that you have proper regulatory scrutiny around it, that you're you're going to see folks probably be a little bit more narrow in their focus. So whether that's thematic funds focused purely on environmental outcomes or or social outcomes, I think that you'll see folks be a little bit more narrow in that definition, just so they can clearly adhere to this is what the goal of the fund is. This is what they can explain to clients. This is what they can evidence in terms of their approach versus trying to do this catch-all, which you know again is kind of was foolish in general. And I, th- I think you saw this issue blow up quite a, quite publicly when I mean, like Tesla is a perfect example of that, right? Where yeah. the ES versus G. I was about to mention that exactly that, as you say, where an Elon Musk was sort of tweeting about it. He got very angry, didn't he, about Tesla being dropped out of somebody's ESG index because, as you say, pretty clear. What their their kind of E score is going to be pretty high, but the S and G really not. Yeah, yeah, and, and so I, th- I think like in the future, what I anticipate is you'll probably see environmentally focused funds, you know, be able to hold the Tesla, and I think that that argument's relatively straightforward. Um, whereas if you're if you're waiting more towards the S and G side, um, you know, that's the reason that they were kicked out of the S and P index was for some of those issues. So I think maybe perhaps that's what happens is you have kind of this more narrow niche where. People are sticking to one of the letters versus all of them. Um, but again, yeah, it all goes back to what you said in terms of conflating all three of those as sustainable investing or impact when that, when that isn't the case is kind of the root of the issue here. Yeah. And another thing I think this raises is the question of greenwashing, which just mentioned this as being uh, an issue. And presumably, as you get all this money pouring into ESG funds and so on, it's clear that the kind of incentive to engage in greenwashing is increasing. And this is something we see in the authorities in Europe and in the US uh, start to try and crack down on. We see this is basically what the SEC is doing in their regulations is trying to stop investment funds greenwashing what they're doing. Do you think this is uh, an increased problem? Emily, what's your your take on greenwashing? Greenwashing is something that people love to focus on. But um, I think we do have to recognize that like this whole system of ESG is fundamentally constrained by what's available in the market as a publicly traded security. We haven't really built the future yet. The market is based on our legacy economy and the winners of our legacy economy. So a lot of ESG is based on, you know, finding the best in class company, right? The best, in, the best company at E, the best company at S, the best company at G, right? A lot of it is rewarded 
basically on transparency, just companies starting to disclose some of the stuff versus not disclosing it. When I used to be at Bloomberg and you would go through and look at specific ESG metrics, you would often find there are very few companies that disclose certain types of ESG metrics. And often the current system just rewards that transparency. So I think this goes back to the idea of like, what is ESG fundamentally about? It's sort of a tool. I mean, I, it is an investment strategy that people use now in lots of different ways. But I think of it more as a tool for how you can think about a broader group of stakeholders. And going back to what Shana was just saying about shareholder primacy, there was like a really interesting article in the New York Times um, this past month about Jack Welch and shareholder primacy and how at GE he really embodied this idea that the social responsibility of companies was to earn profits for shareholders. And for the past decades, that was what the market did. Um, I know when I was at CFOs, or I know when I was talking with CFOs, um, Often we'd see a lot of them came out of GE and like spread throughout the whole economy because it was such, seen as such a successful model of what they were doing. But meanwhile, you know, we didn't really raise the federal minimum wage that much. We talk about the great resignation happening now and all of these people hopping jobs to gain wage increases partially. So there's a whole gap between how we treat workers. There's whole costs to the environment that have happened along the times. And those are just the constraints that we're facing in financial markets now. Like we know these things are more costly to companies than perhaps they were before. We figured out a lot of the financial systems that companies need to be successful, but this is something that they really have to address and have that broader view of stakeholders. So greenwashing, you know, I feel like almost everybody's still trying to figure out how to use this legacy economy. And we have to figure out how we bring everybody along and how we move the energy transition along in the next 10 years um, and how we solve some of these social problems along the way. So I, I do think it's, really important to, um, you know, make sure people are being accurate in what they're saying. Um, you don't want to like throw the baby out with bathwater though. If somebody does make a mistake, I think you just want to um, be transparent and move forward and say, you know, we can keep trying to build a better system here. And your argument, as you say, when you talk about it being something that comes from a kind of a legacy economy, you think this is something that's going to get better over time because we'll have more companies emerge that are that are more genuinely green or are more genuinely socially responsible and we're going to have more companies disclosing more about what they're doing, allowing investors to make more informed judgments. Yeah, a great example of that is a few, um, one of my favorite stories that Bloomberg was breaking the story in the last S&P 500 company to add a female director to its board. So now we're in a situation where every board in the S&P has a female director. That's something that has the potential to impact the, um, the broader economy and the way that companies make decisions. Um, and it's the same with people, you know, adding climate experts to boards or hiring specifically for ESG. It's a way to incorporate this. So I, I do think things are changing over time. Whether we will get there fast enough is still a pretty fundamental question. So one model that I wanted to talk about for climate-focused investing is this really interesting story out of Australia, which some people might have seen. This is a story about the Australian billionaire, Mike Cannon-Brooks, who made his fortune with Atlassian, which is a software company. And what he's been doing is buying shares in the gas and electricity company, AGL Energy, one of the largest um, power generators and power retailers in Australia. He's taken a substantial stake in that company, which has been big enough to block a plan for it to demerge. And he's also trying to stop the company saving three coal-fired power plants and essentially trying to kind of shift the company through his investment onto a path towards uh, more rapid decarbonisation and adoption of renewables. And this struck me as a really interesting development, seeing a wealthy individual, philanthropist, interested in climate change, 
using his money very directly to invest in existing infrastructure and existing company to try and divert that onto a path of more rapid decarbonisation. What do you think about this? Is this a model, do you think, that others could follow? Emily, what do you make of this story? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, and it's definitely an interesting model. Um, it reminds me of this question, you know, maybe a few years ago, people were saying, how much would it really cost to convert, you know, all electricity in the U.S. to a more sustainable system? It's probably a few trillion. So I do think, you know, billionaires, if they're really interested in climate change, are probably in a big position to make an impact, and we've definitely seen that happen. But there are... You know, if you read that IPCC report from that came out the sixth assessment earlier this year, it really talks about how we need to focus immediately on ways to cut emissions and how to sort of turn off our legacy energy system and build something that's more sustainable for the world to move forward with. And there's lots of different ways to focus on that, but we have to, as much as we're focusing on building climate mitigation strategies or building technology that is renewable and sustainable, we also have to focus on turning off um, the older system and also doing that in a way that is just and fair and brings people along and um, creates new new possibilities for them. Um, the energy transition can be a huge opportunity to bring a lot of people into new types of industries that are fundamental to the economy. But I think we have to really think about the way that we're doing it yeah, that is that is a really interesting thought. I don't know, Shani, what do you think about this in terms of this model? Is this something we might see coming to the US? I've just been thinking about the numbers. So Mike Cannabrooks has got an 11.3% stake in AGL. AGL's market capitalization is about 5.7 billion Australian dollars. So that's about um, 600 million Australian dollars is his stake. So it's not a massive amount. It's a large amount of money, particularly for an individual and and family foundation but there are some very very rich people out there um some billionaires with resources a lot greater than that is that something do you think we might see in the us is individuals interested in climate change taking these kind of stakes in order to shift the strategic direction of fossil fuel based companies yeah, it, it, it's a really interesting concept, and it's actually one that I think we've seen a few observations from in other parts of the world as well. So I'd point to two examples. I mean, the most prominent one is probably uh, Sir Chris Hone, who is a British hedge fund manager. He's he's a, a billionaire. I don't know his exact net worth, but he's has billions managed at his firm, and then he's actually personal billions into his um, children's investment fund, which pushes for a lot of increased climate risk disclosure. Um, and things from company management and or central banking entities. And uh, he's actually been someone that's been particularly vocal and aggressive with his rhetoric. Um, he sends formal letters to companies. He's voted against directors at individual companies that don't have um, strict climate plans in, in plan that are detailed and actually ver um, verifiable. He, he's, he's been an open critic against the engagement model for most asset managers. And so this is someone that is using his wealth and resources to collectively raise the you know overall standards for how we approach these issues and so I think that's a that's an example of it and you know I mean he has specific campaigns you can point to in the US I think we're probably a little bit behind the rest of the world here but I, I would call out uh, as Carl icon this pa this past uh, proxy season um, you know he's obviously a very storied activist investor and, and most recently he tried to launch two campaigns that were ESG oriented. Um, they were namely around the treatment of pregnant pigs at McDonald's. Um, and so this was an interesting case study because there were two companies that were performing financially, but he had issue with this, these ESG issues and, and presented that to the boards. 
he ultimately was unsuccessful, but as a as a benefit, he did see other companies start to you know change and revisit these policies as a result of seeing that they can now be you know questioned or attacked or have a proxy battle on their hands if if they don't address these ahead of time. And so I do think it's it's an interesting model, and you'll probably see more of it. Um, that being said, I mean I think it's hard to rely on, on I guess the effective uh, you know altruism or, or general good meaning nature of billionaires across the world. Um, but I, I would be surprised if I didn't if you didn't see more and more folks, especially ones that are you know willing to put their personal capital behind these battles, uh, take it part. Um, the only other part I would say too with that um, that you didn't mention about the the Canon Brooks was that I think one of the big components of his proposal was to not allow them to sell the coal plants such that they would go to less you know responsible operating hands and I think this is actually quite important like if you look at some of the work that EDF has done which is the environmental defense fund oil and gas companies um, you know when they sell off assets they're able to get a decent premium for them and then they'll shift hands to maybe private or less responsible hands and from a climate you know outcome standpoint that's not a good outcome if you have an asset that has a responsible owner or one that's at least held to public scrutiny and it shifts hands to someone that doesn't care, doesn't have the same policies, may not have the same commitments to emissions reductions. Um, that could actually result in worse real-world outcomes. So I thought what was really notable about this Cannon Brooks, you know, activist campaign was was that he was trying to prevent that and actively wanted it to be responsibly shut down in a responsible transition into what he thinks are more compelling strategies that will maximize shareholder value. So I think you know that that's that is something that's definitely notable, and we should definitely pay attention to it because I, I don't think it's going away. Yeah, that's really interesting. And when you think about the law of unintended consequences. That's an absolutely classic example, isn't it? If you see, we've been talking about uh, investors putting pressure on companies to set near net zero targets to cut their emissions and so on. If you have investors in big European and American companies put pressure on them to cut their emissions, and the way the companies cut their emissions is by selling off high carbon assets in oil fields and gas fields that are then operated by companies that don't face that same scrutiny, maybe they're national companies um, from emerging economies, or maybe they're privately owned or whatever it might be. As you say, that's where you can present the form of doing something about climate. You can show, look, our emissions have been cut, and, and we as investors, we've persuaded these companies to cut their emissions. The net effect on global emissions is zero, and in fact, could actually be counterproductive could actually lead to an increase in, in emissions if these assets have less responsible owners. And that is a big problem, which I think people are just sort of starting to think about, to think about the sort of the general equilibrium issues here and to realize that it's kind of crazy to squeeze only one part of the balloon, because if you do that, then the emissions are going to pop up somewhere else. And I do think that's a really positive development that people are starting to think about that. Yeah, very well said. So we've been talking a lot then about the private sector and what investors and wealthy individuals and others have been doing to try and cut emissions and develop low carbon energy. But we've referred a few times to the issue of the pace at which that change happens. And last thing I want to talk about is an attempt by the Biden administration to accelerate that pace. It does seem, just as a general point, it seems very clear that although the world economy is in general, on a path towards reducing emissions intensity and over time uh, towards reducing emissions overall. The goals that governments have set to cut emissions, to comply with climate goals and the Paris Agreement, and so on, 
those imply a much faster pace of change. And if you leave the private sector to its own devices, it is not going to cut emissions on a trajectory that is consistent with those climate goals. So you get governments pitching in to try and accelerate the process in all kinds of different ways. And there was a really interesting move along those lines last week from the Biden administration, which invoked the Defense Production Act to try and accelerate the production of a whole range of low-carbon energy technologies. The Defense Production Act is legislation from 1950, originally passed to provide supplies for the Korean War. And President Biden is using it to try and stimulate production of a whole load of um, products in, in solar, in hydrogen production, and in electrolyzers and catalysts, in uh, transformers and other components for the grid, and in heat pumps, of course, very important technology for substituting for natural gas consumption and providing uh, more efficient heating uh, in homes and businesses. So that's a a big agenda that President Biden was addressing with invoking the act. There's been a little run of announcements from the administration recently. We've had um, uh, $8 billion being deployed for hydrogen hubs. We've had a $504 million loan guarantee for clean energy storage project in Utah, which is very interesting, not least because it's the first such loan guarantee for a clean energy project since 2014. Very long time, and now at last that uh, program is getting up and getting going again, so that's very interesting development. That's a clean energy project essentially combining uh, renewable generation with hydrogen. So there's a lot going on, a lot of which sounds quite promising in terms of making progress towards accelerating the development of clean energy in the US. I'm interested in how significant all of this is really. I'm interested in thoughts specifically about the Defence Production Act. Emily, what's your understanding of this? How significant is it that the administration is invoking this act and how much difference is it actually going to make to development of those clean energy technologies that the administration is trying to accelerate? Yeah, I think the trying to accelerate issue is really the key here with this. So this is a invocation of the Defense Production Act for clean energy. And I think, you know, the world has had a lot of conversations lately in the past few years about energy security and what that means for, um, you know, clean energy independence, for just the the functioning of the U.S. economy, um, the functioning of our nation. So it's interesting to see, you know, this Deputy Secretary of Defense that was quoted in the Biden um, administration's release on the saying, you know, reducing America's dependence on gas and oil is critical to U.S. national security. So this act is going to rely fundamentally on Congress um, because it does say the DPA authority um, has to have necessary funding appropriated by Congress. But what it tells the private sector is something that the private sector has really been hoping for is just more clarity um, about the direction of travel and where things are heading. So if the U.S. government is saying that solar transformers and grid components, heat pumps, insulation, electrolyzers, fuel cells, all of these things are critical for the country, then, you know, private companies that have wanted to invest in the space, perhaps they will end up thinking a little bit more about, oh, how can I do this today? Because while all these things sort of exist today, whether they're manufactured in America, um, I was talking with Generates Policy Director Suzanne Hunt about this, and she's saying, you know, we don't really manufacture many transformers in America right now and grid components, and the electric grid is so important to creating um, a system of clean energy that works. So, I think there's a lot to this in terms of the possibility of saying, well, if you, this is the way we're heading and this is what's important to the U.S. and um, incentivizing people to actually start producing this. So I don't think the government's going to go out and do a lot of big solar projects from this, but I think they're, they're going to make sure that 
this is the way the private sector knows they have to move. Yeah, that is really interesting. And as you say, investment in clean energy and in the grid are really important national security issues, totally setting aside anything to do with decarbonisation or climate change and climate risk. It's uh, been really striking how the way um, as gasoline prices have risen and have become a huge issue, even though the US is roughly uh, in balance in terms of oil production and consumption. Um, a lot of talk about energy independence uh, and you know, people say that that's where the US is. And yet, when it comes to it, gasoline prices are still a massive economic issue for the US, causing a lot of hardship for consumers, still a big political issue, uh, hitting the president's popularity very hard and so on. And so just having a very strong oil production sector, as the US does, is absolutely no guarantee that you can be insulated from changes in the price of oil driven by various different global factors, including one obviously very significant one at the moment, which is Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So that's really interesting. And also, as you say, that question of uh, transformers, critical bits of grid equipment, there's potential massive vulnerability if you have attacks on transformers, physical sabotage, maybe cyber attacks, who knows what it might be. That's something wet, which could have very, very damaging impact on the economy, on the country as a whole. And it really makes sense to build in resilience there and to have the capability to replace equipment when it fails and so on. So yeah, no, I do think that's, that's a fascinating issue, even if, as you say, it's more about signaling than about so far actually deploying any real cold hard cash. Uh, Shannon, what do you think the significance of this is? Yeah, I mean, when we unpack what the DPA allows the, the government to do and the signal that sends, I think, I think Emily's spot on in terms of what the direction of travel looks like for the private capital. I mean, this act allows the government to you know, tap businesses to provide climate tech products listed above their other products. It allows them to install capital equipment and technology and facilities. It allows them to you know, create these MSAs, which are called master supply agreements, to fast track these projects. And then they're going to grant super preferences to increase domestic content standards. So I think if you are a private capital provider, you're probably looking at this and, and seeing these actions by the administration and saying, hey, there is now an acknowledgement that this is a function or a matter of national security um, and, and you know, the direction of travel. And so you know, if I was thinking about trying to invest or underwrite a project before, you, know, you might be way more encouraged now, given that the economics might pencil out and or you have the power of the United States federal procurement behind you know, as a potential demand signal to you. So I think it's I think it's quite important, and I think you know it actually um, sends up a good signal. I think in terms of what you mentioned, in terms of like with the actual buying power, I think that's a little bit more limited. From what I saw from a Bloomberg report, was that there were a few hundred million dollars in the actual fund. I think it was close to like four hundred thirty-five million. And so if you're thinking about like you know setting up a solar domestic supply chain, that that's not enough to you know get a ton of plants up and around. But I think again, I think it's more about the pace of travel. And where we're going, I think the private capital markets are probably looking a little bit more towards will there be something passed either via reconciliation or you know a skinnier version of Build Back Better because as you know it's hundreds of billions of dollars versus a couple hundred million dollars. Um, but again, I think that in general, I think it sends a pretty strong signal that the government, um, at least under this administration and potentially future ones, will consider this a national security issue and will leverage the federal procurement powers in order to incentivize domestic manufacturing of these clean energy technologies. 
Yeah, so what do you think then it says about the administration strategy as well? So is this a case of, as you say, there's still hopes, I'm sure, in the administration that they'll get some sort of climate-related legislation passed if, as you say, some sort of cut-down version of, of the Build Back Better agenda, um, something that Joe Manchin, um, Senator from West Virginia, will be able to support uh, to get more money um, for low-carbon energy. Um, but is there a kind of a shift then that we're really seeing here in the administration strategy, which is sort of de-emphasizing legislation, kind of accepting that maybe they'll get some legislation passed, maybe they won't, but it absolutely won't be everything they'd hoped for. And now they do have to rely more on these kind of signaling measures on regulations, on executive actions, the things that can be done just by the administration on its own without Congress. Is that the direction we're heading in? I, I hope not. I, I I would be curious to hear what, what Emily thinks as well. But I think for, for this to actually work at, at scale and to enable these industries, I mean, we're talking about billions of dollars that will need to be invested. So I think this is the first step of many, but I think ultimately it does need to go back to either passing something through reconciliation or, you know, a, a skinnier version of Build Back Better in order to have, you know, substantial change and actually deploy serious amounts of money into standing up these supply chains. Emily, I don't know. Do you agree with that? I think the administration probably has a lot of different tools available to it. And that's what sort of what you're seeing, a lot of different levers they can pull, a lot of different incentives they can create, even without legislation. I don't know that that is the way that they're going, but, you know, it's just, again, signaling the direction of travel and moving things forward. Um, also, I wanted to go into what you were saying about, you know, noticing the high gas prices we're seeing right now. I think some of this move toward clean energy um, really focuses on the deflationary possibilities of clean energy, where we've seen costs come down. And actually, usually when you have more investments in energy efficiency or um, solar or grid balancing, it's an opportunity to actually save costs throughout the economy. I think the Biden administration this week also proposed a rule for gas furniture furnaces. Um, and they say that it'll save consumers billions a year on energy bills, which when you're paying a lot more at the pump, you know, you do want to create um, other opportunities to save money on energy. So we just about have to leave it there. I want to come on to our free electrons, the personal things we've brought in. Uh, Emily, you set up mine very nicely with your uh, mention of clean energy technologies and the cost of living. But uh, Shannon, what's your free electron? So um, there was this piece in, in the FT that ran, um, that was talking about, you know, global biofuel production versus food security. Um, and one of these stats that absolutely blew my mind personally, um, it said in the US, which is the, the world's leading biofuels producer, 36% of total corn production went into biofuels last year, and 40% of soybean oil supplies went into biodiesel. Um, and so if you kind of calculate the global you know, supply of, of food use for biofuels, it could be equal to the caloric consumption of 1.9 billion people. I thought that was just kind of an insane stat. I mean, the article kind of contributes, you know, why all that's not really apples to apples and such, but still pretty staggering numbers when you think about it. And that was something that I was not previously aware of. Yeah, that is a mind-blowing number, isn't it? And particularly with food being such a urgent problem right now, partly because of weather issues, partly because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the disruption to food exports that's resulting from that. It does seem like kind of craziness, doesn't it, to be using that much food for fuel when we have alternatives available? Yeah. And I think it also brings into a big thing about decarbonization where, you know, a lot of the bio-based pathways, you're consistently competing against other needs. Uh, and so that, that will 
that constraint will only get more important as we continue on this journey. Yeah, so Emily, um, we come to yours in a moment, but I would want to get mine in because it's also sort of relevant to that point, which is uh, my free electron is EVNV. I've been thinking about this because of my Wood Mackenzie colleague, John Humberston. We were talking about high fuel prices and he drives an EV and his claim, and hi, John, if you're listening, you, you told me this, this sounds wrong, but maybe it's right. He claimed to have driven 3,000 miles for just £7.50 worth of power. Don't know how he calculates that. Even for a, uh, a very efficient EV, that seems implausibly low. But anyway, and he was saying, yeah, it's great. And he was being very sort of um, praising his EV and saying how pleased he was to have got one. He said, and also the only fumes coming out are smugness, which I thought was a very good line. <laughs> but it does go to something, I think, which is apparently becoming an increasingly important political issue about the question of EVs and EV drivers being unpopular with everybody else. We had um, recently Debbie Stabenow, who's a US senator from Michigan. She drove her EV from Michigan to Washington. And when she was in Washington, she was giving some remarks at a Senate committee hearing. And she said, oh, I went by every single gas station and it didn't matter how high the price of gas was. And she got absolutely blasted for that by Republicans and on Fox News. And people were sort of yeah. taking that clip and putting it on Twitter and using it against us and saying, saying how terrible it was. Tulsi Gabbard, who you probably know, former US representative, also ran for the Democratic presidential nomination in 2020. She said on Fox News, when starving peasants in France couldn't afford bread, Marie Antoinette told them to eat cake. When American citizens can't afford to fill up our gas tank, Debbie Stabenow and Pete Buttigieg tell us to buy an electric vehicle, totally out of touch. And I mean, I feel, okay, so I do have some sympathy with that position. For a lot of people, they can't own EVs for various reasons. And just to say to people, you're worried about high gas prices, go out and buy an EV. I can see why people get angry about that. And that obviously is an infuriating thing to say to people. But that said, we absolutely should not get carried away, I think, with the idea that EVs are this sort of elitist thing that only the super rich can afford. And I actually went and looked it up. So the 2023 Chevy Bolt, very sort of you know, basic standard EV, that is going to start at $26,600. And the Chevy Trax, which is roughly the equivalent, the gasoline-engined version, about the same size, what they call a compact SUV, that's going to start at $22,600. So it's about a $4,000 difference. So it is something you're paying a bit more for the EV. Bear in mind also that's without any uh, tax credit for that EV, without any federal tax credit, because um, a Chevrolet GM, they've uh, exhausted their federal tax credits. They don't have those available at the moment. So you're paying a bit more for the, for the EV, but over the life of a vehicle, in particular, because of course you've got um, much lower maintenance costs usually with an EV, that's not an enormous difference. And when you think about financing and everything else that's available, Actually, EVs can often be lower cost than the equivalent internal combustion engine vehicles, particularly if there are incentives available. So it's a bit of bad faith, I sometimes think, in that debate, which is to kind of get the idea that, as I say, it's all kind of EV drivers are all super rich people kind of cruising around in their Tesla Model S's or whatever. Actually, there are plenty of affordable EVs available. And uh, if people can get them, they can definitely save money. I guess, I mean, if people can get them, that's an important caveat because at the moment, 
there's a lot of problems with simply getting hold of them because of chip shortages and so on, and there's many months of waiting lists for an EV. But even so, as I say, that kind of it slightly bugs me that whole kind of thing about you know Marie Antoinette and you're sort of riding around in a, a gilded carriage throwing your diamonds out of the window. That's not really what it's like if you're an EV driver. So anyway, that was mine. Uh, Emily, what's yours? Yeah, thanks, Ed. Um, hard to follow that one. Um, I was thinking this week a lot about um, clean energy recycling, and um, Generate just launched a circular economy platform a few weeks ago called Upcycle to sort of like think more about the opportunities in the circular economy. And there was this article in Canary Media this week on why we need to recycle clean energy technologies. And you know, there's millions that have been spent on solar panels, wind turbine blades, lithium-ion batteries. Um, and making sure that those don't go into landfills and get reused. I often talk about, I think a few months ago on the Energy Gang, we were talking about how we're moving in this energy transition to a energy economy that is more metals-based than fossil fuel-based. And that means that we need to like really think about how we're reusing and recycling all of these materials. Um, and there's actually some systems I was thinking, I was watching a movie in the 1980s, and it was an older movie a few weeks ago, and they drove past these wind turbines in Palm Springs. And I was like, sort of did a double take. And those are some of the oldest wind turbine facilities in the U.S. And I was like, oh, well, wait, there were wind turbines in the 1980s (laughs) that have been producing energy for a very long time. There's a bunch of solar panels that are going to be decommissioned eventually. There's technology improvements in all of those places. So how do we take um, that waste and, you know, convert it into something that's more efficient and um, more energetic and battery recycling. So it's interesting to see there's a lot of different battery recycling platforms that have been launched um, for lithium ion batteries, um, for solar recycling, for wind turbine recycling. I think that's something to watch. Yeah, really fascinating issue. And and particularly, as I was saying, with EVs becoming a mass market product, all of those that are going to come to the uh, end of their lives and, and need to be recycled when you have EVs taking up a large proportion of the car fleet and with a lot of valuable metals, lithium, cobalt, etc., in those uh, cars that can be recovered and recycled. That's potentially going to be a huge industry, isn't it, in, in doing that? Exactly. I think we need that to make the energy transition happen. So uh, we'll look forward to seeing all the developments in that front. Yeah, that is a great point. So um, unfortunately, that is all we've got for you from the Energy Gang for this week. But um, thanks very much indeed, Emily, for coming along. Thanks for having me, Ed. It was great to be here with you and Shanu. And thanks very much, Shanu. Great to see you again. Yeah, thanks so much, Emily and Ed. This was a lot of fun. Indeed it was, yeah. And uh, we hope you felt the same listening. Many thanks to all of you who have been listening. Please do let us know what you think. Give us your comments, suggestions, ideas for subjects we ought to be covering. We're on Twitter at, at the Energy Gang, and I'm at Ed underscore Crooks. And we will be back in a couple of weeks with all the latest news and views on what's next for the energy transition. Until then, goodbye.